0: end of Luke chapter 23. We're going to begin our reading today in verse 50, and we'll read to the end of chapter 24, verse 12. So reading the end of chapter 23, beginning in verse 50, into chapter 24, verse 12. I've also asked uh, Jay to put uh, that up on the screen for us, but if you have an ESV in front of you, uh, you can probably find that on page 884. Before we read together uh, Luke's account of the burial and the resurrection of Christ, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer and seek his blessing upon the reading uh, and the study of his word. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we confess that we come uh, with minds dull uh, to understand and ears uh, hard of hearing. Much more, our hearts are hard by the deceitfulness of sin. And so we pray that you would give your Holy Spirit to enliven us. By the very same power with which you raised Jesus Christ from the dead, we pray that you would raise us up to consider these things. Give us hearts to believe, O Lord, and minds to understand, ears to hear, and hands and hearts to rejoice, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll hear now God's word as we find it in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, beginning in verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told them these things, Who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may He add a blessing as we study it together today. As I was uh, preparing this week, as I was thinking about Easter Sunday, I couldn't help but consider the irony of, of what we're doing together on Easter Sunday. And maybe you've been thinking about it too. The fact that we're here meeting on Zoom. <laughs> meeting on Zoom on the internet to celebrate what John Owen called the death of death in the death of Christ. We're worshiping alone together, in a sense. We're sheltering in in various stages of isolation, celebrating the resurrection without singing, all because of the threat of a deadly pandemic. I've been thinking about what a difference it makes not to be able to gather on Easter Sunday. and I don't I don't say this to, uh, to complain or to grumble. I am thankful, as Steve prayed, for the technology that we have, that we can see one another and pray with one another and study God's word together. And I'm content to abide by the public health recommendations. That's not the point. But, but I was thinking about the way that our situation makes it difficult to pretend that, that we're all just going on with life as normal this Easter. Making our Sunday plans and cooking big meals and hot cross buns. And Maybe it's a good thing that this is different this year. It is always a blessing when the Lord shakes us out of our sleepy sense of self-sufficiency. It's always a blessing when the Lord reminds us of our mortality, when he teaches us to get a heart of wisdom and to number our days. It's good because perhaps many normal Easter Sundays, we come and we sing and and we smile. We never really consider the death that Christ has conquered on our behalf. But now we can't help but think about it. On Good Friday alone, 2,074 Americans died of complications due to COVID-19. So far, more than 109,000 dead worldwide. And as those numbers continue to climb, those statistics are getting more personal and they're getting a little bit closer to home. Probably you know somebody or you know somebody who knows somebody who has died of coronavirus already. And really, it's only one virus among many. It's really only one cause of death alongside all the rest But it happens to be that at this moment, the world is thinking about the reality that we normally try so desperately to hide in all of our busyness and all of our distractions in our normal lives. The world is considering the fact, as as the scriptures tell us, that it is appointed unto all men first to die and then to face the judgment. Perhaps it's a good thing. We're worshiping separately this morning. Perhaps it, it puts us in touch with, Easter, with what uh, Easter must have been like for generations before us. In the Middle Ages, there was a saying that began in the culture and, and wormed its way into the liturgy of the church. And that saying was that in the midst of life, we are in death. And it was true, especially in medieval Europe. It was full of plague, and it was full of war, and it was full of infant mortality. And everybody knew that at practically any moment, your life could be demanded of you. Tomorrow is not guaranteed, and so in the midst of life, we are in death, they said. It's not a new situation. And the pandemic that we're experiencing is not the first one in history. And if Christ should tarry before he returns, it's not going to be the last one. From the time of our parents in the garden, physical death has reigned over the world. It snatches up old and young alike. It strikes without warning, strikes without compassion. Seemingly, it strikes without purpose. And so this Easter Sunday, what comfort could there possibly be as we pass through this valley of the shadow of death? Where can we possibly go to find hope in the face of our undeniable mortality? Well, we go to the same place as the church has always gone. We turn again to the resurrection. We hear again the proclamation that because Christ has been raised, death has lost its teeth. It can still bite and it can still chew, but it can no longer devour. And in this life, death still separates us from this world. It separates our loved ones from us very often, but because Christ has been raised, Death no longer has the power to separate God's children from his eternal love. We go back to the resurrection and we we ruminate on the resurrection. We rejoice in the resurrection, but really it all hinges on the historicity of that first Easter morning. It all depends on what Ralph Davis calls the having happenedness of the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ was actually raised physically, bodily that first Easter morning. And I don't know if you noticed, but in in Luke's resurrection account, it seems that his first priority is to convince us that this happened. Just as he has from the very beginning, Luke's concern is that we should have a certainty about the things that we have been taught. He wants us to be sure that the hope of the gospel is alive in Jesus Christ. In fact, that's why we began in chapter 23 this morning and not just in chapter 24. Because in order for us to understand the significance of the empty tomb on Easter morning, we have to understand the fact that there was actually somebody in it the day before. Now, this is normally the part of our Easter celebrations that we skip over. We put a lot of emphasis on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday. On Friday, we focus on the cross. We rehearse the arrest and the trial. We we trace the steps through the scripture of Jesus Christ on the way to Golgotha. We hear the sound in the words of Scripture of the pounding nails. We hear Jesus' words of, of hope and forgiveness to the thief who was next to him. We hear Jesus say that it's finished, and we remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He said that Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses. That's what we celebrate on Friday, and then we gather again on Easter Sunday, and we remember the second half of that verse in Romans. Paul says, Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And rightly so. We emphasize those two aspects of Christ's work, his death and his resurrection, Friday and Sunday, our atonement and our justification. And we we give very little thought to what was happening on that Jewish Sabbath in between. Actually, from one standpoint, there wasn't a whole lot happening on that Jewish Sabbath. It's a silent Saturday in Scripture. The final verse of Luke 23 tells us all that we really need to know. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. That means for everybody who wasn't one of Jesus' followers, it was life as usual. It was a Sabbath like any other Sabbath. People got up and they went about their day. They, maybe in Jerusalem where they were, they went to the temple for morning and evening prayer. They ate the food that they had prepared the day before and, and had some leftovers for dinner. And they gathered in small groups and homes for worship and for prayer together. Well, life was very different for the apostles, though. The New Testament tells us that the apostles gathered together alone. They didn't go out. They sheltered in place. They, they stayed behind closed and locked doors for fear of the Jews. They stayed together alone as they mourned their leader. As they lamented their crumbling messianic dreams. In fact, you can hear it on the lips of the men going up to Emmaus. It shows up in Luke chapter 24. Take a look at verse 21. The two men going up to Emmaus said, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped, they say. As in, we once hoped that way, but not anymore. That was what happened on that Saturday. The hopes of Jesus' followers withered and died because the body of their teacher was resting in the grave. There was a small group of women resting as well. They were resting and they were waiting. They were preparing to go back. Waiting to go back and finish the job that Joseph and and Nicodemus had very hastily done the night before. They wanted to go back and properly embalm the, the body of Jesus for that long, slow decay in the darkness. And while they waited and and while they rested, while the hopes of the disciples fell to pieces, what about Jesus? Well, we know some things from Scripture. We know that uh, that Jesus on the cross said that he committed his spirit into the hands of the Father. We know that he told uh, that thief next to him that this very day you will be with me in paradise. We know that spiritually Jesus' soul was in paradise with the Father. But what about his body? What if you could somehow peer into the secrecy of that tomb? What do you think you might see on that silent Saturday? Maybe a, a miraculous glow. <laughs> Maybe some, some gentle rustlings of movement as the body of Christ began to be resuscitated. Is that what you would see if you could, if you could be there and see it? No, you wouldn't see any of that. If you could be a spider on the wall of Jesus' tomb, you would have seen nothing but a body. A cold, stiff body wrapped in strips of linen, just like any other body in any other tomb in any other Jewish cemetery in that day. That's what you would have seen. Because that's what was there. It was a real, dead body, like any other human corpse. It was breathless, motionless, lifeless. There's something almost biblically consistent about this idea that Jesus finished his work as well on the sixth day. On the seventh, his body rested. while creation waited for resurrection. But specifically, I think, so that we would understand the reality of Jesus' death, Luke records the devotion of some of the followers who were there and who attended to that body. We read first in Luke of Joseph of Arimathea. He's a man that we meet only at the burial of Jesus. He doesn't show up anywhere else in the Gospels, nowhere else in Acts. He's not some footnote in one of Paul's letters. We know very little about him except what we read here. And John's Gospel tells us that up to this point, Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple. He, too, was afraid of the Jews. Luke simply shows us his character, says that he was a good and a righteous man, tells us that he was a man of influence, and yet... Uh, He did not consent to this murderous plot against Jesus. We're told that he is a righteous man, a man like Simeon almost. Perhaps you remember at the beginning of Luke's gospel, all the way back in chapter 2, how Simeon, we're told, was a man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and now Joseph is waiting too. Luke says that he is looking, looking for the kingdom of God. And then just as Simeon had cradled the body of that baby Jesus in his arms and proclaimed a blessing, so now Joseph takes Christ's body in his arms and does that grisly task of carrying him down from the cross. And he washed the body and he he wrapped the body and he laid him and stretched him out in his own tomb. It was a personal gift, a final gift to his teacher. Why would Joseph do all that? Well, he did it because he was devoted to Jesus. He did it because he loved him. He did it because he couldn't bear the thought that, like most criminals convicted and and executed by Rome, that his body would just hang there to rot as a public spectacle. He had to find some way to honor Jesus, and the only thing left he could do was to bury his body. It was the only way that Joseph could show his devotion to Jesus. But then there were women there, too. In fact, as we read Luke's gospel, it seems like the women were always there. These are the same women that we meet all the way back in Luke chapter 8. We read there that these are the women who provided for Jesus and for the apostles, for their itinerant ministry out of their own pocketbooks. And they went with him everywhere that he went, and they were still there at the cross in the end of chapter 23, verse 49. It says that long after the apostles were scattered, long after Peter denied even knowing Jesus, Luke 23, 49 tells us that the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And now at the burial site, they still stood by. They refused to leave the Savior's side. They watched his body laid in the grave. They made a plan to return, to anoint him with spices so that the smell of royalty would cover that inevitable stench of death as it did its work. It was all they could do. Their devotion to Jesus led them to treat his body with utmost respect. And so we see a picture of this devotion, and we see a picture of this honoring of Christ's body, but what you need to see that is... In Joseph and in these women, their devotion did not lead them to expect anything other than a dead body. I know that you've read this account. I know that you know the details, and it might seem simplistic to rehearse the story over and over again one more Easter, but Luke's grand point in chapter 23, verses 50 to 56, is to show us that Jesus really died on the cross. On Friday evening, his lifeless body was really sealed inside of a limestone crypt. And this massive stone was rolled into place, and as it did, it closed the opening to the grave with a thud that sounded like forever. The ones who were there, the ones who handled his body, the ones who wrapped him up and sealed him away, knew without a doubt that Jesus really died on the cross of Calvary. Praise the Lord that he did. Praise the Lord that he was offered up for our transgressions. It was his sacrifice for us. It was also the proof of his incarnation. Never stop to think about that. It was proof that, that Jesus came and lived and entered into the fullness of humanity. What can possibly be more human than death? What stronger evidence could we have that Jesus took on real flesh and real blood than the fact that his flesh could be broken and his blood could be spilled? You see, Luke 23 is showing us that Christ not only died for us, but he died with us. He suffered a death that is every bit as real as the one that stares back at you every time you see those rising statistics. Jesus died a death that is every bit as real as the voice that you hear when your doctor calls to tell you that you do have the cancer. Jesus died a death that is every bit as real as the casket you see lowered into the grave, holding the body of somebody you love. Jesus died that kind of death. A real kind of death. The same kind that you and I will all die unless Christ returns first. He died death that entered the world through human sin. And they put him in the tomb, and they all went home hopeless. And on the Sabbath day they rested. But, chapter 24, but, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. What did they find when they got there? Well, it wasn't what they expected, and that is Luke's point in the second part of our, our text today. When the women returned uh, to the tomb, they found exactly what Jesus told them to expect at the tomb, but they did not find what they were prepared for. They were prepared to find a body, of course. It was the whole reason they had come back. They didn't come back to see the glory of the resurrection. They came back to embalm someone. They watched the body laid in the tomb. They saw how it was placed, and in their minds, something was missing. And so they agreed to go and gather supplies and come back. Just as soon as they had the light to work, they were carrying out a plan. It was the most natural thing in the world, and that's exactly what they did. In fact, a whole gaggle of them came back. Down in verse 10, it tells us that that the group included two Marys, one Joanna, and a group of other women. Now, this is important. It's important because you know that from time to time, skeptics of the resurrection like to portray these women as flighty or fearful or maybe even hallucinogenic. And so the skeptics say that in their grief, the women just went to the wrong tomb. (laughs) That's the explanation. They say that it was all just an, an unintentional misunderstanding. If only they had had their wits about them and turned up at the right place, none of this resurrection stuff ever would have gotten started. Or maybe they say that the women are so emotionally distraught that they began to see things that weren't there. You know, their psychological state was was so fragile that they couldn't tell their imaginations from reality, and it was all just uh, a terrible image that they saw. Like so many, they uh, are often written off, these women, simply because they're women. Oh, you know how women are. (laughs) You know the tales that old wives tell. And in fact, the apostles are the first ones to, to basically say that, to dismiss uh, these women and their account. That was essentially the apostles' reaction, at least at first. Verse 11 tells us that these women told these things to the eleven and all the rest. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. and They did not believe them. An idle tale. <laughs> a, a delusion. Nonsense. The kind of thing that's dreamed up by somebody who's out of touch with reality. Actually, Luke is presenting all of this to you so that you would know how realistic these women were. These were compassionate, thoughtful women putting their hands to work that they agreed needed to be done. In Mark's account, they're so on top of things, they're so realistic, that they have time to think and wonder about the logistical questions. Who on earth is going to roll away the stone for us? That means that the resurrection wasn't invented by some flight of fancy. It wasn't concocted by hysterical women trying to convince themselves of, oh, what they deeply wished was actually true. They didn't wish for a resurrection. They didn't expect a resurrection. They didn't even believe it was possible. It also means that the resurrection was not the result of some inventive storytelling on Luke's part. Luke knew what the ancient world was like. In the first century, Josephus wrote that women weren't allowed to serve as witnesses in court because why? Well, he said they were, quote, giddy and impetuous. and So nobody in their right mind would make up a story about the greatest miracle that has ever occurred and then leave it hanging on the word of a few Jewish women from the Galilean backwater. Surely, if it was all a fabrication, if if Luke had just made it up, surely he could have come up with a few better witnesses than these, right? Unless, Unless this is actually how it happened. Unless Luke is actually so concerned about the truth that he doesn't mind telling you that it was a handful of women who became the first witnesses of the resurrection. That he doesn't even mind painting the apostles in a bad light and saying that when the women came back with something that was true, something that Jesus had already foretold, that even the apostles didn't believe them at first because they were also in touch with reality. They weren't hanging on the precipice of belief, just looking for for some little sign to send them over to the edge to believe something fantastic like a resurrection. It was outrageous to all of them. Nobody expected it. You see, Luke doesn't mind telling you this because he, he, this is how it happened. That the women went back on Sunday morning expecting to find the body of their dead teacher, and instead they found a puzzle. They found an enigma. When the women came to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away, and there was nothing inside except some strips of cloth and the smell of spices. And then even at the sight of the empty tomb, they still didn't understand what was going on. Luke tells us that they were perplexed. The other Gospels say that they assumed that someone had stolen the body, but nobody's going to steal the body and unwrap it first. At least it makes the whole endeavor a lot harder. If you're going to take a body, you're going to take the body bag as well. But it was a puzzle, and so in his mercy, the Lord sent ministers to declare to these women what they should have expected that Easter morning. Now in verse 4, these ministers are described as men. Later in the chapter, we find that they are angels. Two angels in in shining clothes, just like the ones that Jesus wore at the Mount of Transfiguration. Two angels radiating the light of heaven into into the tomb. In the Bible, we often find that God sends his angels to announce his activity in the created world. Angels come to... Uh, to draw human attention to deeds of God that are too good to be missed. And so we find at the beginning of the gospel that the angel Gabriel appears to Mary to tell her that she is going to bear the Son of God. And the angels appear to the the shepherds in Bethlehem to announce the birth of the Christ to the world. And so it is here that the messengers of God appear to this small band of women dressed for mourning in a garden outside Jerusalem. They appeared to them in order to interpret the mystery of the empty tomb. Their message began with rebuke. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Actually, that phrase there, the living, it ought to be more of a title than a description. The New American Standard Bible actually gets it correct. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? That's who he is. He's the living one. Jesus is, as John said, the light that shines in the darkness. He is the light that gives light to all men. He is the living one who has life in himself. He gives life to those he chooses. And so they say, why do you come to a graveyard to search for one who is life itself? It's a categorical mistake. They should have known better, the angels are telling them. They should have known that the life giver could not stay bound by the cords of death. They should have realized that the Holy One would be raised in vindication of his righteousness. They should have known that the one who could calm the waters and raise the dead and heal blind eyes would surely emerge from the grave, that he would come forth victorious over sin and over all the implications of death and judgment. They should have known that he wouldn't be there. Or maybe they had simply forgotten who he was. Maybe they had been with Jesus so long. Maybe they had seen so many of his miracles that they had forgotten what it was like to be amazed by Jesus. Familiarity tends to do that to us. I bet when you first believed in Jesus, the joy of the gospel hit you like lightning. Everything was fresh and it was full of light, but over time it begins to dull. Not because it's not true anymore, but just because we've gotten used to it. It's familiar. We all have that sinful tendency to begin to be unimpressed with the truths that we encounter most often. We'd far rather be dazzled for a moment by something new than to simmer on the same truth for decades. And so maybe in their familiarity with Jesus, they had stopped expecting him to exceed their expectations. And then again, maybe it wasn't Jesus who was too familiar to them. Maybe it was death. Maybe they'd gotten so used to that normal cycle of death and dying, death and dying, that they didn't remember. Or maybe they didn't perhaps yet believe how Jesus told them that he had come to break that cycle. That he was the one who came to bring life and hope through resurrection. It didn't matter, in in a sense, whether Jesus had become too familiar or if death had become too familiar. The answer for these women was the same. They needed to remember. Jesus was not in the grave. He has risen. He is alive. The living one has been raised. And Luke doesn't mean metaphorically raised. He doesn't mean spiritually raised. He doesn't mean raised up in, in their, their thoughts and in significance in their memories. Jesus Christ, Luke is telling us, has been physically, literally raised from the dead. So the body that was sown perishable on Friday has been raised on Sunday imperishable. The corpse that was bound and buried in dishonor has been raised to glory. And what these women needed was to remember how Jesus had told them time and time again that that is exactly what they ought to expect from him. Verse 6. Remember. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He must be crucified. He must rise on the third day. Remember. That was the word. Remember that this death was not unanticipated. Remember that the sacrifice was planned before the foundation of the world. Remember that all the suffering that Christ endured for us was for a purpose. He died to save his people. Remember, dear women, how he told you that death would not have the final word, not for Jesus and not for those who walk with him in faith. Remember, dear sisters, how he told you That in the midst of death, you should expect to find life. He is not here, but he has been raised. Then you see the glory of verse 8. It's so simple. And they remembered his words. Folks, this scattered Easter Sunday, maybe this is what we need. It could be that... In our familiarity with Jesus, the joy of Easter has become passé for us. It could be that the reality of death has so crowded our vision that it's hard to see through that, to, to understand the joy of the resurrection. And if that is you, dear friend, remember. Remember that Jesus died a real death, just as he said he would. Remember that he was raised from the tomb in accordance with his word. Remember that all those who repent and believe in him will have life, real life, physical life, eternal life, resurrection life with the living Savior. Remember the word that he spoke to you. Remember and rejoice. But then again, maybe this isn't all that familiar to all of you. Perhaps there are some listening who have never heard this message before, or maybe if you've had, you've still not gotten up the gumption to believe that it could actually be true. If that's you, the word is not just remember, but believe. Don't be like the apostles at first, who dismissed it all as an idle tale. Well, that couldn't happen, of course. We're, we're people of science. We're people of, of intellect. We don't uh, believe these mythological things. Don't dismiss it out of hand as the apostles did at first. Rather be like Peter, who got up to go and, and to investigate these things for himself. Of course, you can't go and find the tomb anymore. You can't see that it's open, and even if you would, who would believe in that sort of thing? But you can still search the scriptures. You can still hear what Jesus had to say about himself, what the Bible tells us about him. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is a real Savior. That he lived a perfect life, and he died a sacrificial death. And that he was raised again to give life to his people. And that life is a free gift to anyone will take it, but it's a gift that can only be received by believing that it's true. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote by way of reminder to the church in Corinth. He said, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins." in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Dear friends, if you believe this, if you hold fast to this, you can have the promise of Easter for eternity. You can have life even in the midst of death, because the hope of the gospel is alive in Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Lord, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that you sent Jesus Christ to come and to suffer and die in the place of sinners. We pray that you would help us even scattered as we are today in different homes, among our families, or maybe by ourselves. Help us to believe that truth. Give us your spirit to give us life in him. Teach us what it is to follow you and to love you and to worship you. Teach us what it is to be your people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.